Okay, so um, let me pray. Lord, as we open up your word, as we begin um, this new semester, this new time of opening up a new book, Lord, speak to us. Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, so you have heard me joke a number of times um, with Lynn that I will never forgive her for making me study Revelation. I feel a little bit about the same way about studying Daniel, in all honesty. Um, but I want to start with that last song, that reframe. I'm a child of God. With this. Do we have that up there? I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Um, I've been set free. Keep going through these. Um, I've been set free. I'm free indeed. I'm a child of God. In my father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Keep going. Are there other songs? There's more songs. There's some. Um, who am I that the highest king would welcome me? As lost, he brought me. Oh, his love for me. Keep going. It's just, oh, his love for me. The sunset's free. I'm a child of God. Free at last. He's ransomed me. His grace runs deep. I was a slave. Um, Jesus died for me. Died for me. Keep going. Keep going. I've been chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who I say I am. All those cool phrases that deal with who we are in God. Okay. Um, we're going to study Daniel. Daniel was a child of God. Daniel was an Israelite. It is highly likely that Daniel was a descendant from David, that he is of the royal household, okay, is what verse 1 tells us, or one of those first verses in Daniel 7 tell us, maybe it's 4, I mean, probably 3 or 4. He's part of the royal household. He's a descendant of David. He is one of God's chosen people. All the promises of Abraham and Moses and the prophets up to him, they all belong to him. And Daniel 1 tells us that basically in approximately 605 AD, uh, BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes through Jerusalem after defeating Egypt on his way back up to Babylon and seizes the city, carries off the best and the brightest. Those people in Jerusalem who could make a difference in society, the movers and the shakers, the Harvard full-ride scholars, and he takes them up to Babylon. And along with it, okay, not only does he go in to Jerusalem and take those who are the descendants of David captive, who have all the promises of God, not only does he take them, but he also goes into the temple of God. 
And Daniel 1 tells us that he takes some of the furnishings, the goblets, the, the gold plates, some of the, you know, some of the things in the house of God, and he takes them to Babylon, and he deposits them in the temple of Nebuchadnezzar's God. And in so doing that, he makes a statement that the Babylonian gods have defeated the God of Israel. That the Babylonian gods are greater than the gods of Israel. That Israel is now subject to Babylon. And now you're Daniel. And you're in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And you're being taught Babylonian languages, Aramaic languages. You're being taught about the gods of Babylon. Your names are being changed. Okay? You're no longer called Daniel, the God who judges. Okay? You're, you're now being given a new name saying that you serve the Babylonian God, that your identity is no longer with Yahweh. Your identity is now with the gods of Babylon. You're probably only a teenager. No parents anymore. Just the king. Nothing's familiar to you. Can you still sing that song? Can you still say, I am God's chosen person? See, I'm um, yesterday at staff. Um, Tim Fura at our all staff team read Psalm 121 to us. He said, um, it goes like this. I, I, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He'll not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is the shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He'll watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Can you read that in the court of Babylon and say yes and find hope and find assurance? When things go completely wrong in your life, and you wake up and you go, God, where are you? What do you do? See, our study in Daniel is going to teach us what to do. Because what happens to Daniel is he goes to the court of Babylon. He learns all of these things, all of these Babylonian ways. But he resolves to not forget 
who he is. That he is a servant of Yahweh. See? I um, want to talk a little bit about how we get to Daniel. Um, and in a, in a sense, to, to do that, I, I want to start first by reading a little bit of Ephesians 1 to you, which I meant to bring my glasses, so I hope I can still read this. So I was going to sleep last night. God said, you need to read this, so I'm going to read this. I know, I have Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He predestined us to be adopted to the adoption to be sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious name which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sins in according with the riches of God's grace. With all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the time when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under God he chose us before the creation of the world in Christ to put into the effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under God. God had a plan before he created the world. In Genesis 1, we read about that creation. In Genesis 1, we believe that God created everything. And the pinnacle of his creation was to create us, man and woman, in his image. In order that we, along with him, might rule over all of creation. And in Genesis 3, we find out just exactly how good a job we did at doing that. In Genesis 3, rather than trusting in God, rather than being obedient to God, rather than remaining in fellowship with God, we instead decided that we were going to start making decisions for ourselves. And we took a look at things and said, you know, I want to experiment over here. I want to trust this. I want to make my own decisions. 
And at that point, okay, everything fell apart. Okay. And it is at that point that we get the first prophetic word of God. God takes a look at the serpent and he says, who basically deceived Adam and Eve, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your billy and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It is a prophecy that from the seed of woman would come Jesus, whom Satan will strike the heel by putting him on a cross, but whom Jesus will raise victorious and crush Satan. When God created the world, he was not surprised that we blew it. When God created the world, he created the world with full understanding that it was going to cost his son dying on a cross in order for at the end of time for everything at the proper time to be brought back into unity. All of creation and all of heaven okay, into this oneness with God in the center that we read at the end of Revelation 22. This book, okay, is a book that basically tells us what God is doing in the world. And it's a book that calls us into that activity. Okay. It's a book that, in a sense, pulls back the curtain so that we can see what is really going on. that the world is in rebellion, that there are elements of heaven that are in rebellion against God, and that God is defeating all of that rebellion and bringing everything back together in him. That's his plan, and that's what he's called us to. As you go through, I gave you a timeline as you walked in of, of kind of the old, Testament is it probably the Old Testament? It's just the Old Testament, right? Yep, of the Old Testament. As you go down through that timeline, okay, we can get that first one. Let's go to the next one, Carolyn. As you go through that timeline, um, and, and just a word um, to, on this, I had to put some timelines up here. Um, years ago, I had this, got this nice little timeline that's laminated and put on my wall. And I found some PowerPoints that go with it, except they're all copyrighted. So these are not getting sent to you. So just FYI, but it's kind of all in your, what you're getting. Here's, here's the deal. The first 11 chapters of Genesis tell us how evil just continually spread through the world. And then Genesis 12, in a sense, begins chapter one of God's story. In Genesis 12, God calls a man by the name of Abraham. And he basically says, Abraham, 
go from your country, go from where you live, leave your your people, leave your father's household, leave everything behind, and go to the land that I will show you. Now, it's fascinating there. He doesn't say, I want you to go to Israel. He just says, go to the land I'm going to show you. I want you to just kind of leave. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Abraham, I want you to leave what you know. And I want you to follow me where I will show you. And if you do that, then I am going to bless you so that you can bless other people. So that the whole earth, not just your family, but so that the whole earth can come to know me so that there can be unity. And I'm going to work through you to fulfill my plan. And as we march through Genesis and we get to Isaac and we get to Jacob and we get to Joseph, what we continually to have over and over again is God basically renewing that covenant that he makes with Abraham to each one of Abraham's descendants. He basically says to Jacob in Genesis 28, all the peoples are going to be blessed through you and through your offspring. All the peoples of the world are going to be blessed through you. And then one of Jacob's son, a guy named Joseph, gets his brothers love him so much, you know this story, that he gets sold as a slave to Egypt. Actually, they wanted to kill him, but they decided to make some money off of him instead. And so he gets sold as a slave, and he goes down to Egypt. Okay. And he eventually becomes head over all of Egypt. And there's a famine in the land, and Jacob has to take the rest of his household and go to Egypt. And on his way, God says, don't be afraid, Jacob. This is part of my plan. Part of my plan? This is the promised land. You told me we were supposed to live in in Israel. What do you mean we're going to Egypt? God's going, it's part of the plan. Trust it. It's part of the plan. And Jacob dies in Egypt. And Joseph's brothers all go to Joseph and say, "Uh uh-oh. Hey, you know, I know right now that you're big and powerful. And I know that we sold you into slavery. But, you know, dad kind of told us to be nice to us. Told us to tell you to be nice to us. And Joseph says, what you intended for evil... God intended for good. In a sense, we could fast forward to Daniel and say the same thing. What Nebuchadnezzar intends for evil, God is going to use for good. You see, when the Israelites go into Egypt, what happens is that family all of a sudden becomes a mighty nation. Okay? They're no longer just 12 brothers. They're now thousands of people. And God 
calls Moses and he says, you know, hey, I, I made this covenant back there with Abraham and you're going to basically do the next part. You're going to bring those people back out of Egypt and you're going to bring them into the promised land and you're going to take over the promised land and I'm going to make you a great nation, a great kingdom. See? Because I want all the world, I want to bless the whole world through you. And so God, Moses does all the miracles, the Israelites go through the desert, they go into the promised land, and we enter this time of the judges, and the judges are really fascinating. Because what happens is they begin to take over the land, as God tells, starting with um, Joshua, be strong and courageous, and they take over and they follow God. You know, what happens is after everyone, after Joshua dies, the people forget about God. And when that happens, life goes south. And so God sends a judge who basically reminds them of who God is. And God delivers them. And then that judge dies. And they forget about God. And they go through this cycle over and over and over again. Until eventually they get to the point of saying, you know what, we're tired of judges. God, give us a king. We want to be like everybody else. And the last of the judges, a guy my name is Samuel, looks at God and says, God, whoa. No. And God says, Samuel, really, it's me they've rejected. They want to be like everybody else rather than allow me to be their king. But even in the midst of that, I have a plan. I'm working and so he gives him Saul as king. Looks like every other king. And then he gives him David. And David is a man after God's own heart. And the kingdom begins to flourish. And David's son Solomon becomes king. And at that point, all of some of the prophecies that we've read about in Deuteronomy and in Exodus about what God is going to do through the nation of Israel, where everybody else comes and seeks Israel, gets fulfilled partially in Solomon. Because the whole world is now coming to, to Solomon, trying to find out where he gets all of his riches from, trying to find out why he is so blessed. But this is only kind of a foretaste of what God has. And Solomon begins to go the ways of the rest of the world. Rather than resolving to continue to be obedient in his heart to God, he starts marrying all these other wives and starts allowing them to set up their temples to their gods. And when Solomon dies, the kingdom ends up being divided in two. And Israel begins to fall apart. Israel is called the northern kingdom and there's the southern kingdom of Judah. God begins to send his prophets right off the bat that, that every king in the northern kingdom is a bad king, okay? From the very beginning, they divided the two, and the, the first king of, of the northern kingdom kind of goes, you know what? I don't want everybody going back to the temple in Jerusalem and worshiping God in the temple in Jerusalem. I'll lose my people if they do that. So he builds altars to Baal in his country and says, here, this is where you go worship God. And God sends prophets over and over and over again and says, don't worship them. Come back to me. But they don't listen. And so God eventually sends the Assyrians. 
And in 722 BC, the Assyrians come in and completely wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel, leaving just the southern kingdom of Israel. And God begins to say to the southern king's people, see what happened to your brothers? If you don't continue to look to me, the same thing's going to happen to you. But they don't listen. There's kind of some good kings in Israel, sometimes of Judah, sometimes of reform, then sometimes of bad kings, and they kind of go back and forth, and God continues to send prophets to call them back. But the people don't listen. And so in 605, or actually the the Babylonians have now taken over the Assyrians. Nebuchadnezzar's gone down. He's defeated Egypt. And he comes in and he begins probably one of three campaigns to seize Jerusalem. He doesn't start off wanting to completely destroy it, but because Israel continue, because Jerusalem continues to rebel against him, he eventually destroys Jerusalem. He eventually destroys the temple. And the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, goes into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Daniel is the first of those going into captivity. Okay. Now what's going to happen, real fast, and we'll get more about this a little bit later, but what's going to happen is Daniel's going to be in captivity for 70 years. At the end of those 70 years, a Persian king is going to come to the throne. He's going to destroy Babylon. The Persian Empire is going to be one of the greatest empires throughout that whole section of the world during ancient times. And what the Persian king is going to do, what Cyrus is going to do, is he's going to allow the Israelites to leave Babylon and go back and rebuild Jerusalem. But when they go back and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, they remain under Persian control. They do get to rebuild their city, but it's still not their own. Eventually, Persia is going to get defeated by Alexander the Great. Okay. Alexander the Great is going to die at a ripe old age of 33, and four of his generals are going to take over, and they're going to split the kingdom, Alexander's kingdom, into four. And two of those are going to be in one of those generals in Egypt and one in kind of the Middle Eastern area, kind of continue to fight with each other. And they're going to continue to, in a sense, have control over the nation of Israel. And they're going to try and turn Israel into a Greek country. They're going to Hellenize Israel. And in fact, during kind of about 150 years before the coming of Jesus, there's so much going to try and make Israel like everybody else. They're, they're going to go in and defile the temple. And the family called the Maccabees are going to stand up and revolt against becoming totally Greek-speaking people. And they're going to win. And they're going to push out finally for about 60 years before the Roman Empire comes in and takes over. 
the oppressors of Israel, and they're going to be their own kingdom again. Now, we're going to learn a little bit more about that as we kind of go later on in the study. I tell you that now because the book of Daniel is kind of an interesting book. People argue about whether or not the book of Daniel was written back in 605, between 605 and about 536 B.C., or whether or not Mac, or whether or not Daniel was written during the time of the Maccabees. Okay, now the reason for that is because the first half of the book of Daniel, chapters one to six, are all history. Okay, they're all stories about what happens to Daniel when he's in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. Right. The second half of Daniel 7 to 12 are all visions, dreams that Daniel has. Those dreams all talk about what's going to happen after, you know, kind of between the time of captivity and the coming of the Roman Empire. The accuracy, historically, of the second half of Daniel is actually better than the first half of Daniel. Okay. Some people kind of look at the first half of Daniel and kind of go, well, wait a minute. I don't ever see Bolasphar becoming a king. You know, where's Darius? When was he king? And we can't find any kind of chronicles or any written material that, that talks about them reigning over Babylon. I find all that interesting sometimes because when I was in seminary, there were lots of things we didn't know either, and now we've discovered it. But that's beside the point. But because of that, because there are some things in the first six, people sometimes think, oh, well, Daniel was really written during the time of the Maccabees in order to give the Maccabees hope as they stood up against the Hellenization of of Israel, against the Alexander generals. Personally, I want to say an earlier interpretation of Daniel, but Daniel is one of the books of the Bible that is most contested as to who wrote it and when it was written. There's another problem, just to be up front with, Dan, up front with all this. Um, Daniel 1 is written in Hebrew. Daniel 6 through 7 is written in Arabic. And Daniel 8 through 12 is written in Hebrew again. People kind of go, so why did we do that? I don't know. The Hebrew Bible has Daniel listed amongst the historical books. Okay? First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, Judges, Esther, Ruth. Those are history books. We group them together in history in our Bible. In the Hebrew Bible... Daniel is found in those books. We group Daniel amongst the prophets because of its apocalyptic nature of kind of wanting to, in a sense, pull back the curtain and say, this is what God is doing when you don't understand what he's doing. See? Okay. And so we put it with the prophets. But some people say, well, yeah, but it's, it's accuracy about what happens with these four kingdoms that come after Babylon is so accurate. It must be history. It must have been written later. And other people say, you know what? God can tell us ahead of time what's going to happen. 
And so people argue back and forth. Okay. First half of Daniel, written in the third person. Second half of Daniel, written in the first person. Okay, it's almost divided in half. Really weird. Lots of fun. Okay. We can get lost in the weeds of this. Or we can go back and take a look at what God told Abraham and what God told Abraham's descendants and even what God told King David when he said, you're going to have a descendant who's going to reign forever on your throne and he's going to reign over all the earth. We all know that to be Jesus. Big picture. God is working to restore all of creation into a unity underneath his gracious kingship where he dwells in their midst. That's the big picture. And God is going to bless the nation of Israel in order that through the nation of Israel, all of the world, even those who aren't Jewish, would come to know and be part of God's gracious kingdom, that we would all live in unity. Abraham and his descendants were blessed to be a blessing not just to their family, but to all of the world. How do you be a blessing to all the world when you are bunkered down in your own nation? There's a real sense that what begins to happen with Daniel is that God now begins to not just work on one family, but now really through that one family to show the Gentile world, to show the Nebuchadnezzars and the um, Cyruses of the world And the Caesars of the world. That God is the one true king. That even though they might make plans, that God is the one who's bringing plans to fulfillment. Now, if I'm Daniel, backing up, all I'm thinking about is my family background. You said we were going to be your chosen people, that you were going to give us a nation. And God's going, yes. But for the purpose of you bringing other people into that nation so that we can all be one, my work's not done yet, Daniel. I'm going to send you to Babylon in order to finish my work, in order to continue my work, actually. And Daniel goes down to Babylon, and there's that sense of, Is it all lost? 
And what God is going to show us over and over again is, no, it's not all lost. Nebuchadnezzar is going to try and convince you that it is, but it's not lost. Remain true to me. Continue to look to me. Remember who you are. Be obedient to me. All those things that I have taught you to be all of these years that you have learned over and over again, be who I have taught you to be in the midst of captivity so that my plan can continue to go forth. Daniel, will you be my hands and feet in exile? Yesterday, um, in my own devotional reading, um, and, and leaders, this is really kind of funny, um, I actually found myself in Jeremiah 24. Okay? Um, I think it was, right? Is it Jeremiah 24? Yeah, Jeremiah 24. Um, Jeremiah is an interesting, 24 is an interesting chapter. Jeremiah is talking to the nation of Israel at the time when the Babylonians are beginning to kind of finally, for the last time, surround Jerusalem and destroy it. And Jeremiah says to the people in Jerusalem, I had this vision of two baskets of figs. There's this basket of good figs, and there's a basket of bad figs. Um... This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Like these good figs, I regard as good the exiles from Judah who I've sent away from this place to the land of Babylon. My eyes watch over them for good and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me that I am their God, that they'll be my people. But the bad figs, they're the ones who won't leave Jerusalem, who won't go into exile. In Jeremiah 25, it goes, or it goes on that, actually, talks a little bit more about that time that they're going to be in exile. This is about seven years. And then we get to Jeremiah 29, which is one of those verses that we all love to quote. But Jeremiah 29, verse 4 says this, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those who I have carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons. Find your wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in numbers. Do not decrease and seek the peace and the prosperity of the city which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord because of it because if it prospers, you will prosper. Huh? God, you built this temple. God, you built this Jerusalem. God, this is your chosen land. God, aren't we supposed to be in your country? And God's going, the ones that I'm working through, they're the ones who go to exile. Huh? And not only are you supposed to go to exile, but I want you to settle down. And I want you to pray for that country that is now ruling over you. And I want you to multiply there. And I want you to prosper there. And I'm going to bless you there. Huh? I want to go back to Jerusalem. Guy goes, later. Right now. Learn to live in exile. Because out of exile, God's plan is being furthered. The Gentile world is coming to know God. 
And as the Jewish people in exile are blessed by God, then they become a blessing to everybody else. Here's the question. Are we willing to live in exile? Are we willing to be a part of God's plan? Or are we wanting to sit back and stay in Jerusalem and say, no, bless me here. God, I want you to put these promises into effect now. And God's going, they're for later. Right now, I want to bless you to bless other people. And we go, no, 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 no. Let me stay here. God, they're mean people. They're not nice. God's going, yeah, that's why I put you there, to show, you, show them a different way, to show, you, show them that, you're, that they're not really in control, but that I'm really in control. Use opportunities that I give you in exile to stand up to them and show, you, show them that I am the one true God even though they think they're God. And Daniel's willing to do that. And the question is, are we? There's one slide I want to put up here um, that I'm kind of backtracking a little bit. When the prophets came to Israel, um, it's that one about temptations, Carolyn. When the prophets started telling the nations of Israel what they were doing wrong, um, Tim Peck did a sermon um, about a year ago um, on kind of all the prophets. And he talked about the fact that there were basically four themes, four things that the prophets, all the prophets kind of spoke against the nation of Israel. He said that basically he spoke against their unfaithfulness. He says that basically because they go off and, and try and take things into their own hands and, and worship the, the local gods who promised to do things that, that God is wanting to get their attention. You know, they're seeking to control life themselves. Um, he, he says that the reason why the prophets get speak out against the nation of Israel is because they're arrogant. Because they think they're it and that everybody else is less than. He says that the reasons why the prophets spoke out against the nation of Israel is because they took all of the great things that God gave them and they took it to themselves and they oppressed other people in order that they might have more. So you had a temptation of unfaithfulness, the temptation of arrogance, the temptation of oppression. And he says that the reason why the prophets spoke out against the nation of Israel is because they mistrusted God and they went and tried to make treaties with other nations rather than waiting on God for his promises. Daniel goes into exile. He's not arrogant. He trusts God even when it looks like game over. He lifts up and points Nebuchadnezzar to God's word. Interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dreams as God tells him to. And he becomes a light. My question is, are we like the basket of figs that wants to stay in Jerusalem and remain as we think things should be? Or are we willing to enter into what God is doing even when we don't get it and be a light in the midst of a world that God wants to come to know him 
but that we don't want to have anything to do with. You know, Daniel could have just kind of given up. Daniel could have been a martyr. Daniel could have compromised. But instead, through prayer and seeking God, he remains focused on God. His integrity is intact. His righteousness is intact. And he becomes a light. He engages his culture with Jesus. Or with, okay, with God. What about us? I don't want to study Daniel to find out when Jesus is coming back. Some people do. I don't want to study Daniel so that I can look at God and say, pull me out of the lion's mouth. I want to study Daniel to learn how I can be a part of God's plan in what he's doing in bringing all nations back to him. I want to study Daniel to learn how to be a light in the midst of a world that is wanting me to be something else. Because that's the world we live in. I want to study Daniel to learn how to engage our world for Jesus until Jesus comes back. God's working his plan. We might not see it. It might look like game over. Napoleon, the Battle of Waterloo, looked at his general. And he says, today, England's going to be mine. His general says, well, you know, you might want to talk to God about that. Napoleon says, I'm Napoleon. At the end of the day, Napoleon lost. Our God is in control. It might not look like it. It might try and assimilate us into its ways. The book of Daniel tells us that our God reigns. Will we serve him? Will we enter into his plan? Or are we going to ask him to serve us? Let me pray. Lord, you've chosen us. You've blessed us. You've freed us. You've told us that where we've blown it, that you've taken care of it and we get to start all over again. That Lord, you've called us into your business, that family business of finishing that work that isn't finished yet, of restoring all things to you. In the middle of our exiles, in the middle of the places that you have planted us, May we seek you and be your light to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good morning.